2 in your Bibles this evening, Hebrews chapter 2. My three children and my mother are in the Charlotte airport in a layover. And uh, we were able to get them tickets. They're flying and they leave the flight at Greenville a little after 8 o'clock and land at Greenville uh, right before 9 o'clock. I think it was like $30 more per ticket to fly them from Charlotte to Greenville. How many of you would pay that much more to drive to Greenville instead of Charlotte? Um, I have all the improvements. I'm, maybe I'm doing a little bit of speaking a little bit of the Israelite wilderness language right here, murmuring a little bit. But, uh, you know, they've done all of that improvement at the Charlotte airport, and it has not helped a thing. It's actually made it worse. Uh, there are bottlenecks going in and out, both arrivals and departures. Uh, so any chance I get, I fly in and out of Greenville. And all God's people said, that was pretty lame. Anyway, maybe if you flew a little more, you'd say that. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so they're flying in, and we're very excited to have them home. I was actually back there running the slides tonight because uh, several other guys are still at work, and Judson is in the Charlotte airport. Judson? If you're watching right now, I cannot wait for you to get back, son. Uh, and my girls, too, of course. But uh, we're, uh, yeah, we're glad for all of them to get back and uh, looking forward to reunion here now. Though They've had a great time in Aruba working in the ministry down there and uh, serving there at the different capacities, doing construction work and having part in special music and a number of different things. Got to do some teaching as well. And we're looking forward to hearing how things went when they get back. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 1. Therefore, uh, the reason for the therefore, how many of you have heard that? When you see a therefore in Scripture, you ask what it's there for, okay? And it, it always is referring you back to what was just said in the preceding context, and basically drawing a conclusion. Because of what was previously said, here is a conclusion that we draw. Here is an application that we make. Therefore... The therefore that he is really referring to here is because of the supremacy of Christ. That's really the theme of the book of Hebrews because Jesus is better than the angels, uh, in particular in chapter 1, because he is God, because he is the apex of God's revelation. Okay, keeping that in mind, chapter 2, verse number 1, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of the reward. Okay, what do you think the author of Hebrews is referring to there? What portion of scripture when he said, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, what portion of scripture do you think he's referring to there? Somebody just say it out loud if you know. The law, okay, the Old Testament in particular. Remember Acts chapter 7 and verse number 53, uh, Stephen the deacon told those who were accusing him and who would soon stone him, he said, you received the law, your fathers received the law by the disposition of angels. And there are four or five other passages of scripture that speak of the accompanying ministry of angels in the giving of the law. God gave the law, but the manifestation of angels was a part of it uh, when the law was given. Uh, the problem with the Old Testament Jews is they had exalted the place of the angel. 
And now the author of Hebrews is arguing to them, demonstrating to Jews who thought of angels above God's design for them. He said, no, Jesus is better. Okay? But the Old Testament scripture, given by the dispensation of angels, every transgression of it, disobedience, received a just recompense of reward. Verse number three, now referring to New Testament believers, in particular Jewish believers, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, talking about Christ when he was on earth, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Who do you think that would be referring to? The apostles. Okay. Now notice this. God, verse number four, also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers' miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. What does verse number four demonstrate to us about the, the whole teaching of the sign gifts and signs and wonders movement that we even hear a lot about in the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement. What does verse number four demonstrate to us as far as a position? We hold the position that the sign gifts ceased. Okay, Why do we say that based on number four, verse number four? Anybody want to? Josh? Okay. Bearing them witness. And that goes, that goes along with, that's exactly right, goes along bearing them witness. So he's talking about bearing the apostles witness, which automatically puts the sign gifts and the signs and wonders that confirmed the giving of the apostolic scripture, the New Testament scripture. It automatically puts signs and wonders in their generation to confirm the giving of the scripture. The logical conclusion then is this. Once the scripture has been given or completed, what do we do with sign gifts or understanding of them? They're gone. They're done. They fulfilled their purpose, okay? So there's some tremendous doctrine in just these four verses, but all that to say, that's not my focus tonight. I want us to talk about the danger of drift. The author of Hebrews, throughout the course of the whole book, gives a series of five warnings, and it becomes something of an outline of the book. We'll not look at the other four, obviously, this evening, but this is the first of five warnings that he gives. And it's really, to believers, the, the, the warning of drifting. I want you to listen to a quote I found in a commentary in preparation for this evening, and he really gets onto it right away, the commentator said this, for most of us, the threat of life is not so much that we should plunge into disaster, but that we should drift into sin. There are few people who deliberately and in a moment turn their backs on God. There are many who day by day drift further and further away from him. There are not many who in a moment of time commit some disastrous sin there are many who almost imperceptibly involve themselves in some situation and suddenly awake to find that they have ruined life for themselves and broken someone else's heart. We must be continually on the alert against the peril of drifting in life. And so really our question this evening is how do you keep from drifting? Is there help in this passage that gives us an indication of how we can keep from drifting. Uh, yesterday, 
uh, I was uh, feeling a little bit of cabin fever and grabbed a weed eater and went out. And we don't have, since we live in the woods, we only have a little bit of grass in the front yard. The backyard is just basically a bare spot where weeds can freely grow if they're given enough time. And so I went out and I weed-eated the front yard because it's almost not worth it to fire up the lawnmower, and plus it's good exercise. And I weed-eated the front yard, and I thought, well, while I'm at it, and I'm not sure when Judson did it last, I'm going to go around to the back yard and weed-eat that. And I went around and was overwhelmed to find out how tall the weeds had gotten, but also how much the English ivy had taken over my backyard. How many of you have some English ivy on your property? And another illustration is that wonderful Japanese named plant called kudzu, okay, that came here how many decades ago as an experiment in erosion control. Uh, I'm glad some goats and cattle like it, but anyway, it is the, you know, I thought about this. It's been a little while since I've been back there, but I was shocked at how quickly that English ivy was already spread across the back open space and was beginning to send feelers up trees and up the house. And it's a good 25 feet in most places, 20 to 25 feet from the edge of the woods to our house. And in just a short amount of time, we've just kind of been going on with life and before we know it, something has taken over a portion. So needless to say, I looked like I had been sprayed with a grass gun when I came inside, but I did reclaim some territory. The danger of drifting. This, as I said, is the first of five warnings. The author of Hebrews is writing uh, initially to these Jewish believers, but by way of application to all believers, this warning of keeping from slipping. These things, don't let them slip. Notice again, if you would, verse number one, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. I've underlined in my Bible those four words, lest at any time. What do you think the warning of that is? You know, sometimes we might look at a new believer or someone who's an immature believer and say to them, boy, if they don't watch it, if they don't have an older believer watching out for them, they could easily be taken over. But the author of Hebrews says, lest at any time we should let them slip. What do you think that means? What's the warning in that for us? Anybody want to say, Marco? To any time, to any one of us. No one's immune to that, lest at any time. I want you to notice, first of all, as we think about what we can do to uh, keep from slipping, I want you to notice uh, the, the first question, really, this is not the first point, but the first, the, really the question that comes to mind, keep from slipping from what? And the big picture of the book of Hebrews is this, from a focus on the centrality of the greatness of our salvation and the glory of our Savior. A focus... We don't want to slip from that focus on the greatness, the centrality of the greatness of our salvation, the glory of our Savior. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book called Spiritual Depression, uh, highlighted the fact that really one of the greatest damages or damaging impacts to the testimony of Christianity in the world is joyless Christianity. Joyless Christianity. Someone who professes to be a Christian and yet does not demonstrate as you remember from uh, 
uh, this past week that unmistakable visible evidence of the presence of God, the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life. And I'm not talking about some kind of put on uh, Pollyannish type joy, all right? I'm talking about internal joy that is the product of the Spirit of God at work in our lives. Joyless Christianity is a great damage to the testimony. And one of the reasons he said that Christians are joyless is because they fail to keep their focus on the greatness of their salvation and the glory of their Savior. He would sum it up in the doctrine of justification, the fact that I am justified by faith in what Jesus has done for me. And so that being said, just several thoughts here as it relates to how we can keep from slipping. By the way, you know, a ship, even when it drifts off course, it's still in the ocean. And it's possible even for a Christian to just gradually, through the routine of Christian life, even as they're faithful in church, if they're not careful, to just drift off course, keep going through the motions. And so it's a pertinent and a relevant warning for us, okay, as we think about the importance of not drifting. I want you to notice, first of all, that this warning is given to believers. One of my favorite commentators is a man by the name of Kenneth Wiest. Wrote a wonderful commentary on the New Testament, four volumes. I taught at Moody Bible Institute back in the days when it was better than it is now. I'll just say that, okay? Uh, but I disagree with Kenneth Wiest on this because he says that the book of Hebrews is primarily written to Jews who were not believers yet. And so they're Jews who had heard the gospel, had initially shown interest in the gospel. But then because of the potential for persecution from their unsaved Jewish family, they were backing away. There's just a serious and a significant problem with that. The author of Hebrews, would he have been used of God to write the book if he had been unsaved? The doctrine of inspiration demands that the human penmen, okay, were saved people because it was the work of the Spirit of God through them. But I want you to notice this. There's a pronoun that gets used over and over that indicates that the author is not addressing lost people who are thinking about getting saved. He is addressing believers. And that's a key to a right understanding of this passage. Notice this. Therefore, who? We. He's putting himself in the category of those that he's addressing. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which... We have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. Drop down to verse number three. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, let me just stop here and say this. How many of you have either heard this or maybe even used this verse in witnessing to a lost person? I have. This is a verse similar to Revelation chapter three and verse number 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open up, and we've used that, that, that verse to witness to lost people, the Lord Jesus Christ is knocking at the door of your heart, and he wants in. And if you trust him as Savior, it's the same as, it's a great metaphor, but it's not a good interpretation of the passage. Because Revelation chapter 3 is addressed to a local church of believers. And in that picture, Jesus was outside of that church, in a sense, wanting back in 
to the fellowship of the church, so to speak. In this passage, the, the author, the Spirit of God, is addressing believers. And the author even includes himself. How shall we escape Okay, if we neglect so great salvation? The word neglect carries with it the idea of become apathetic towards. How shall we escape judgment, consequences, If we, even as a believer, become apathetic to, it also carries with it the idea of counting as a light thing, a trivial thing, trivializing. How shall we escape consequences understood if we become apathetic to this great salvation that we have? I'll also mention this. The word salvation that is used here is not just talking about the point of salvation. It's talking about all three aspects of salvation that are taught in Scripture. I, am, I was saved, March the 29th, 1980. I was saved. I trusted Christ as Savior in an instant. I was born again. But I want you to understand the Bible also teaches that I am being saved. It is not process salvation like the United Methodists teach, or many of them do, but it is sanctification. It's that process where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, changes the child of God into the image of the Son of God for the glory of God. But the Bible also tells me, Peter attests to this, the author here as well does too, refers to salvation not only as that point in the past, not only the process the believers are engaged in now, but when I am glorified, I will be saved. Delivered once and for all from the presence of sin and the power of sin no more having a hold over my old body because I will receive a new and a resurrected body that is not subject to sin. And all God's people said, amen. Okay. And so it's not just even that aspect or those three aspects of salvation. Notice if you would back in verse number 14 of chapter 1, are they, speaking of angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister uh, for them who shall be, what's the word? Heirs of salvation. He's talking about believers. I'm not going to get into the whole idea of guardian angels tonight, okay? But he's talking about angels' ministry to those who are heirs of salvation. Six times this word salvation is used in the book of Hebrews. And how it's used gives us an idea of how the Spirit of God, working through the human penman, whoever he was, wants us to understand salvation in the context of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1 and verse number 14, our salvation is viewed in the context of something that we inherit. Now, we definitely have a lot of it right now, but is there more to come? I know it's Wednesday, folks. Is there more to come? Okay, the best is yet to come. Okay, now, get it. It's secure. According to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 6, I am already seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm as secure as I'm ever going to be. Romans chapter number 8 uses the tense of a verb when it says that I am glorified to speak of something that is already accomplished in the mind of God. Romans chapter 8, I'm joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that the Father has promised to the Son through Jesus, I'm a joint heir of that. Okay, so salvation is not March the 20, just March the 29th, 1980 for me. It is a whole lot more than that. Okay. 
in chapter 2 and verse number 3, we see that it's a great salvation. It's the idea of beyond comprehension. Chapter 2 and verse number 10, Christ is the captain of our salvation. It is that which he won for us as our captain. Chapter 5 and verse number 9, the author of Hebrews calls our salvation our eternal salvation. Implying not only that we're eternally secure, but that it's much more than what I'm experiencing right now in time and history. Chapter 6 and verse number 9 indicates that there will be evidences or fruits or things which accompany salvation. In chapter 9 and verse number 28, the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes again, he will return unto salvation. And it's the idea of leading us to our glorification. Okay, that change, that ultimate fruit, if you would, of our salvation. So, all this to say, if you continue with the passage, you'll notice that this first person pronoun, this plural first person pronoun indicates that this passage, which has a warning of drifting, slipping away, is a passage written to believers. But I want you to notice secondly, and this really answers the question, how can we keep from drifting away? Notice what the author says. Here's a command, if you would, or a necessity. Therefore, we ought. It's a word of necessity. It is necessary. If you're going to keep from drifting or slipping and neglecting, as the warning is, what do you have to do? What is it necessary to do? Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Now, What's he talking about? He's talking about the scripture, the revelation of God that's been written. He's talking about what Jesus spoke that's recorded in scripture. He's talking about what those that heard him, the apostles, heard and have or would yet write in scripture before the completion of revelation. Okay. And so if we're going to keep from slipping as believers, if we're going to keep from neglecting and heed this warning, we have to understand importance of the Bible, the bulwark of Scripture. Notice what the author says. We ought to give the more earnest heed. Here he speaks of priority. The, the word more that is used in the text is a comparative. And he's saying this, give the greatest priority or the greater of everything that you prioritize. Prioritize giving heed to what you've heard. Prioritize giving heed to to the scripture. I was so encouraged a couple of weeks ago. Grace and I were over in Tennessee. We were having a meal with a missionary statesman. He's in his 80s. Uh, and he's served for years in Japan, was the general director of the mission agency where we were ministering. And uh, he's, he is just a gem of a man to be around. But you know what he told us? He said, yeah. He said, I'm finding in my retirement. Now, he, he preaches somewhere almost every Sunday. But he said, you know what? He said, I'm just finding that I need more and more of the word. He said, I start the day. And he was not bragging. It was all in a spirit of humility, just sharing with us uh, how he is coping with this chapter of life. He said, I'm finding that I, I just can't quit unless I've spent about three hours every morning in the scripture. That's giving the more earnest heed. Okay, now, I'm not in any way saying you better go home and spend three hours in the Scripture every morning. Okay. I understand that schedules are different, but listen, one thing's for sure. 
among all of us, whatever we prioritize, we better give the highest priority to giving heed to the things which we've heard. You know, it's funny, there are a lot of things that we're tempted to give heed to. Fox News, Wall Street, the Dow Jones, maybe ESPN, maybe someone that you value highly their opinion. And the author says, give the more earnest heed to the things which you have heard, the word of God. When he says, give earnest heed, it's a, a word that has a fairly broad definition. It's the idea of keeping before the face of. Get the picture? The Bible being like a filter or a lens through which I view everything. Keep it before your face. In the nautical world, it was used of a ship that when a storm was coming, stayed in the harbor. It kept the home base in view. It kept the anchor dropped in the harbor. It didn't say, hey, let's see if we can survive this storm outside the harbor. It kept the harbor or the home base close. By the way, the book of Hebrews is filled with references or illustrations from the nautical world. Uh, giving the more earnest heed. It's the idea of keeping before the face of. When we think about the Bible, it's the idea of just keeping your nose in the book. Keeping the Bible before us, the things which we have heard. And then notice this, lest at any time we should let them slip. It's the idea of drift by. In the nautical world, it's the picture of a boat that has been set adrift. And it has an opportunity to anchor down, but it misses the opportunity. It's the picture of the pilot of a ship that doesn't do the preparations necessary with the sails and with the wind and with the rudder and with steering the ship in the helm in order to make the harbor. And he drifts by. He misses the opportunity to make his entrance into the harbor. In another usage the idea of letting them slip, these things which we have heard, uh, is the idea of a vessel that's got a bunch of holes in it. So letting these things slip is this, running, letting them run out of my life like a leaky vessel. You know, a lot of things I, I had to take a couple weeks ago, take the Suburban down to Dills and Landrum and get a, a screw removed from a tire. And that's always an inconvenience, isn't it? You know, I could just, we were getting ready to go on the trip. I could have just stopped every hour and a half and put more air in the tire. But what an inconvenience that would have been. What did I do? I went to Dill's. I took the extra time. They backed that screw out of there. They plugged that tire, filled it up to pressure, and off we went. You know, because of our being fallen creatures, we're pretty leaky. You ever notice that? I know I'm leaky. Charles Finney, the evangelist, I don't agree with all of his theology, but he said, I need the filling of the Spirit and filled up with the Scriptures on a regular basis because I leak a lot. <laughs> How many of you would say, without raising your hand, I leak a lot? By the way, when we're giving heed to other things, we're going to allow leaks to come into our lives. But when we give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, it keeps leaks from developing in our lives. 
the idea of paying attention to, giving the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should develop leaks. And then he goes on, of course, to talk about the importance of the Old Testament Scripture, but then on top of that, the superiority of the New Testament Scripture as the culmination of the Old Testament. Now, why is the Bible so important? In the context of the book of Hebrews, the Bible is so important because it directs us to the beauty of Christ. Christ is better. Verse number 9 of chapter 2, but we see Jesus. Chapter number 3 and verse number 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and uh, verse number 5, but Christ as a son, or chapter six, verse number 6, chapter 3, verse number 6, but Christ as a son over his own house. Verse number, uh, chapter number 4, verse number 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Verse number 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We can continue to move through the book of Hebrews, chapter uh, 7 and verse number 24, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Chapter 9 and verse number 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. Chapter 9 and verse number 28, so Christ was once offered. Chapter 10 and verse number 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Chapter 12 and verse number 2, looking unto Jesus. And then verse number 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. The word that is the bulwark that keeps us from slipping has as its purpose to point us to Jesus Christ. When our focus is on Christ, he who, as this same book will tell us, does not change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. It will fix, it will stabilize our lives. And so, the danger of drifting, this warning is addressed to believers. The cure for it is the Word of God, the bulwark of Scripture, which directs us to the beauty of Christ. And thirdly, I want you to notice that this is for our benefit. Verse number three, the author gives a warning How shall we, believers, Escape. How shall we flee from the consequences understood if we neglect, if we become apathetic to this great salvation that is ours, which there's still yet so much of it that we're going to enter into? It's already secured for us. But there's so much of it that is yet to come. How shall we escape? If we get our eyes off of that, we get them onto the things of this life, we get them onto the trials of this life, the circumstances of this life, we get them onto people, whatever the situation may be, if we do that, there are consequences that are going to come. One commentator I read, and I've heard all kinds of guys speculate as to what the consequences were, especially since this is an address to believers, a warning to believers. How shall we escape what? One commentator said this. It is, uh, this passage is written with, <coughs> pardon me, tantalizing vagueness. What does he mean? I got to tell you, I don't think I want to find out. I know it's not speaking of the loss of salvation because the book of Hebrews refers to our salvation as eternal. It could refer to consequences in this life. Can I just say this? Some of the most miserable people that I've met as far as just at the human level are not people that are lost. I've met some very 
happy, temporally <laughs> happy lost people. Now, if they don't trust Christ as Savior, we know that great misery is coming. But some of the most miserable people that I've met are believers who are not right with God. Believers who are really leaky. <laughs> Believers who have opportunity <coughs> to anchor in the word and on Jesus, and they keep letting those opportunities slip by. Now, the flip side of this warning, the author of Hebrews has already talked about in the Old Testament when there was transgression and disobedience, there was a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape, New Testament believers, with all that we've been given, with all that is ours? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And really, the, the implication of this, the other side of this, is if we don't drift, there is great reward. There's great benefit. There's great blessing that comes. I'll close with this. Just as a caution by way of illustration, one of the commentators that I read in preparation for the message this evening told how his, his dad was a preacher, and this man is in his 70s now, closing in on 80, I believe. And he said that when he was a boy, he and his father had a hobby together. So this we're talking 65 years ago. He and his dad had a hobby together. They collected coins. He said they were serious about it. When the dad would travel, he would go to coin shops, and they had these big books with all the little holes in them, and the, the, the dates of the coins, and where that coin was minted, and so on. And he said, boy, we collected coins for years while he was a boy, through his childhood all the way up, I guess, until his late teen years. And he said, when we were out and about, and if we found a valued coin or we would be on the lookout, we would go to different shops and pawn shops and coin shops and get coins. And he said, we completed, he's, I think the number he said was like 20-some of these books of these rare, valuable coins filled. But he said, as I got older, I started thinking about other things. I started drifting. And he said, Dad got busy in other aspects of ministry. He said, we still spent time together, but we found we were spending our time together doing other things. He said, every once in a while, we would go on a binge. And we'd say, oh, yeah, coins. We would find one when we were out and about. And he said, we'd come back and dig all our coins out. And we'd look through them. And we'd fill in the slot for the coin that we had just found. And he said, but then it became less and less frequent that we would go back to those coins. And, he said, and then he said this. He said, it got to the point where we didn't even go back and look at them anymore. And he said, he said, I know when I was a boy, they were worth hundreds of dollars. But he said, now I'm an old man. And he said, I don't even know where those books of coins are. And he said, I'm sure knowing from memory some of the coins that were there, there are thousands of dollars of coins in those books. And he said, and I had no idea where. He said, do you know how coming to that position started, that state started just less and less frequently getting those books out and remembering what you have. Folks, listen, we have a great salvation. Let's not slip away from frequently reminding ourselves of what we have through what we've heard this great salvation that we are heirs of.
Because if not, there's a danger of drifting. And then Peter warns that when people do that, they will sometimes even forget that they were purged from the old source. The danger of drifting. Let's not slip. Amen? Father, thank you for your word tonight. Help us as we go to prayer tonight, I pray in Jesus' name.